Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learned with you so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. Giving to your alma mater is easy. Colleges and universities across the country have well-honed fundraising skills, from cleverly using students to call for the annual fund to proudly etching a donor's name in the marble facade of a new dorm. In fact, U.S. colleges and universities raised $52.9 billion in the fiscal year that ended at the end of June 2021, which is almost a 7% increase over the previous year. And while schools make giving easy, giving effectively is a lot harder. Where in the institution is your dollar going? Uh, What about those big endowments? What's all that money? We even make effective giving hard on ourselves, with so many of us, and I'll include myself in this, blithely making gifts to our alma mater, when frankly working with other colleges might be a better fit for our charitable goals. So how do we bring sanity into this emotionally and even politically fraught world of higher ed giving? Well, it starts with being intentional about our giving and protecting our intent, and that is the goal of Fund for Academic Renewal, which is our guest today. It is a project of the American Council of Trustees and Alumni. FAR, as it is known, wants to help donors to make transformative gifts that ensure the institutions live up to their end of the bargain. So how do they do that? Well, joining me is Emily Jay, director of FAR. She has experience with Pennsylvania's great think tank, Commonwealth Foundation, as well as Civics Ed Powerhouse, Jack Miller Center. And like me, she is an alum of Davidson College, which is outside of Charlotte. Uh, Emily, thank you for joining me today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's a real privilege to be on the show, and it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Well, conservative donors have uh, heard for years that there are lots of risks, lots of dangers in giving to their alma mater. But just like we all hate Congress but love our own congressmen, we seem to think the problem is always over there, that uh, that it won't affect whatever school we care about. So what is the flaw in that thinking? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's a great analogy. Um, and I do think the winds on this are shifting a bit. There's a growing movement of alumni who are starting to wake up to the problems at their alma mater um, and start to really organize to defend free speech. Perhaps that's something we can talk about um, a bit later in the podcast. But I think for most alumni, nostalgia is a really powerful impulse. We all get the emails from the college. We see the, the videos of students. We get the shiny brochures. And I think for most alumni, we have really fond memories of our days on campus Um, We're really grateful for the opportunities that our education has afforded to us. And so there's this natural and I think really healthy instinct to want to give back. But sometimes alumni don't do the same homework on giving back to their alma mater as they might to giving to another nonprofit. They might be visiting campus, but they're not asking those tough questions about what the college experience looks like today. Um, They're maybe not communicating their own personal values to the advancement office. And I think too often alumni are having conversations only within the advancement office and they're not talking with the faculty and the students about their experience. So I think sometimes donors tend to skip over that hard work that they would do with another nonprofit when it comes back to giving to their alma mater. And the problem here is that donors might find that they're giving to an institution that no longer upholds the kind of education that they remember. 
And they might be funding actually the worst impulses of our nation's universities by kind of writing that check every year that they do make it so easy to do to just send that right in, um, sign your name here, that you might be funding something that actually kind of works against the other parts of your giving portfolio. It's a really interesting point that the donors may only be interacting with the development shop, not talking to students, not talking to teachers, not talking to other parents. So what's the answer? If the school is getting off track or if we think we have some questions that can't get resolved, should the donors just stop giving entirely? I mean, is there a right way to do this? Yeah, and I think, so there are some very smart people who differ on my take here, but I will say it's my kind of my personal nightmare that all conservative, moderate, classic liberal donors just stop giving to higher education. Um, I think that would be incredibly bad for our nation's colleges and universities. I think that would be really destabilizing for our country. Um, there are certain kinds of giving that I'd like to see stop, as we just talked about kind of sending in that annual check every year. I think that's something that could be faded away. But for all the serious problems facing higher education, I think there is also a lot of good happening. Um, so my call to liberty-minded donors would be to find the good and fund the good with some healthy guardrails intact to ensure that your gift is used as you intend. Well, that segues nicely into the work that you do at Fund for Academic Renewal, FAR. Uh, so tell us kind of big picture, what are you doing there? What What's the goal? Maybe start with explaining what ACTA is since FAR is couched under ACTA and then they kind of work hand in hand. Yeah, absolutely. So we're the Fund for Academic Renewal or FAR. And we're a project of the American Council of Trustees and Alumni, or ACTA. And my apologies for all the acronyms. We're in D.C. And, that's um, how we do things. That's here. how we do things. Um, and I think the key to ACTA strategy is really in our name. Um, we're focusing on leveraging those two audiences, trustees and alumni, and equipping them to be engaged in higher education reform. We work on a really broad range of issues, in part because trustees are called to work on a broad range of issues, and also because we think the challenges facing higher education are complex and multifaceted. Um, we boil this down to really three principles, or what we call our three A's. So the first A is academic freedom, so ensuring campuses are places where professors are free to teach and professors are free to learn. Academic excellence, and for, this, for us this means a return to a solid core curriculum that prepares students for prosperous careers and to participate in their communities meaningfully as informed citizens. And I think there's been a lot of attention in the media and by, by donors on the kind of free speech side of the equation, I think maybe not quite enough on curriculum. Um, we Yes, we want free speech, but we also want to be talking about things that are rich and meaningful um, and lead to a better um, citizenry. And then finally, accountability. So students are paying too much and getting too little in return. So FAR exists because we think that donors can play an important role in advancing these principles. Um, we also think donors need guidance to help navigate the complicated university bureaucracy to identify those people doing great work. Um, they also need an advocate to ensure their intent is respected. And I think we all know universities don't have the greatest track record when it comes to respecting donor intent. Um, but ultimately, thoughtful giving can spark a renewal of our institutions for higher education, and FAR exists to guide thoughtful donors through the giving process and ensure that their gifts are used as a force for good. Um, I'd also like to thank our, our sponsor is the Diana Davis Spencer Foundation. They make all of our work possible, and because of their support, our services are complementary to donors. So far, we have advised on about $188 million in higher ed giving. I would love to reach the $200 million mark by the end of the year. So if you're thinking about a $12 million gift or you're giving $4 million, you have a couple friends that are also giving, um, please reach out. I'd love to have people to help. It's amazing that you can offer this service for free. And, and Diana Davis Spencer Foundation is phenomenal and, and, and an important piece of conservative philanthropy. So that's really great. So make this practical for us. I mean, what happens? This this person hears your call to, uh, they want to do a $12 million gift, but they're scared it's all going to get flushed down the toilet at their, their school. They turn to you. 
what happens? One of my favorite examples is a gift that my predecessor, Jackie Merrill, helped to advise about five years ago. And I think this gives a good uh, lens into how FAR works. Um, so this is a donor who approached us and wanted to establish a chair-free enterprise at his alma mater, which was the University of Vermont. So I love this story in part because we now have a chair-free enterprise at the University of Vermont, a state that brought us Bernie Sanders. Um, so this donor, Angelo Pizzagalli, was an alum, and he wanted to ensure that students had the opportunity to study the principles of free market economics and better understand the value of capitalism and why it's so important to a free society. So originally we started looking at the economics department within the College of Arts and Sciences, but really determined that a better fit for this would be the business school, which was educating a lot of undergrads. Um, some of the best undergrads in the university were going to the College of Business. It also was a much friendlier home for these ideas. There was a lot less opposition. Yep, so ended up looking at the business school for this gift that we were originally thinking about arts and sciences. Um, so that's part of why you want to have conversations outside the advancement office to really determine where the best home for this gift is going to be. Um, we also worked with the Pizzagalli family really carefully on the gift agreement to ensure that the language really encapsulated what his vision was for the gift. And for this, we laid out really clearly what the fundamental concepts were that this chair would teach. And chairs are tricky gifts because there is a pretty bright line that donors can't pass when it comes to academic freedom. Donors can't, you know, name who's going to receive the chair. That really needs to be part of the faculty hiring process. But the gift agreement can make clear kind of what the principles that they're hoping this, this gift will advance. Um, so the fundamental concepts laid out really clearly that this was to teach the value of capitalism. And it was written in a way that you couldn't have someone come in and subvert the principles the Pizzagalli family was looking to uphold. You, know, you couldn't have a Marxist economist come in and talk about you know, why the free market system was so awful for the nation. Does that get written in because of the work you're bringing to it and saying, you know, you need to make sure you're really spelling out X, Y, Z. You're not crossing a line by saying these things. Uh, and, and I imagine that's built on experience of seeing it kind of go the other way. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. I think, I can't remember what the insurance company is, but there's one that has a slogan that's like, we we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. And I feel like that would be a great slogan for FAR too. Um, so I think that is one of the most valuable services that we can provide is really helping the donor to understand how that hiring process happens because it's not the same as a business ultimately. Colleges have their own kind of strange bureaucratic rules that are set up um, that they really don't like outsiders involved in. So we help donors know how can you set the table so that you're going to get an outcome that you're ultimately happy with, but you're not going to cross that line that, you know, is really going to upset the university. So I interrupted the Pizzagalli story. So how did they, yes. how did that wrap up? About a year later, they were, uh, the family celebrated the investiture of Professor Andrei Yukov, who is a professor at the School of Business. He's teaching exactly the kinds of courses that the Pizzagalli family was hoping and um, Angelo describes him as a true patriot, and they've developed a really lovely friendship, too, over the years. They have dinner together. Um, Professor Yukov will send him emails about what's happening in the course, just kind of informally. Um, and it's been something that's been really meaningful for him. And I talked with him maybe a year or two ago just about his own experience. And what he said was, like, at the end, it really wasn't fun. Those kind of final negotiations with the university, you had a point where, like, the, the joy of giving is not really there in the detail. He's like, but now that I'm a year or two out, I'm so happy for what I've done. It's become such a meaningful part of my life. Is it too much to say that part of the reason some of these gifts go awry is because donors are not willing to do that that pain uh, that, that you just described, that, that getting through those final details and really woding into the weeds to make sure things are just right because they want where they are now. They want the the happiness of having the professor and everything being hunky-dory. 
Yeah, there's that. And there's also, I mean, usually they're working with people that they've really, they trust and they have a great relationship with. So I think there's a tendency to say like, well, I don't really like this, but let's just move on. And, you know, I know that so-and-so is a good guy. This is going to work out fine. And that might all be true. They might be working with somebody who really understands their intent, is their advocate fully, um, you know, really wants to see their vision enacted. But if you're talking about an endowment gift, I mean, there's a lot of turnover to take in, into account. The advancement officer that you're talking with might not be there five years from now, but your gift will be. Um, so if it's not codified really clearly in writing, you might ha have the outcome that you want for a few years. But if you're talking about a long-term gift, that's not really what you've envisioned. Getting into another side of the practical piece of this, in your news, in your most recent newsletter, your summer newsletter, which I found on my desk last time I was in there, uh, you had a really great section about the way the donor advised funds can play a role in some of these giving, structuring the gifts. Uh, that is obviously something we think a lot about. Can you talk a little bit about structuring gifts big picture, but how donor advised funds can play a role in protecting that donor intent? DAFs are a great vehicle for higher ed donors. And one thing that I really like is I'm a big proponent of year-to-year -year giving. Um, so I think endowment gifts are risky. It's much easier to stop a payment on a gift um, than to recover a gift once it's already been made. So if you can give year-to-year, -year, I think that really ups your odds for success, that your intent is going to be respected. And DAFs make that year-to-year -year giving much easier. Um, so that's the first reason that I really like working with a DAF. The other benefit, I think, to working with a, a smaller boutique firm like Donors Trust is that you have an ally in overseeing your gift. I think you won't really get that with a Schwab or Fidelity, even though they can facilitate the year-to-year -year giving. Um, but with Donors Trust, you know that this is a firm that shares your values. And I think the more eyes watching your gift, really the better. I think we see bad things happen when no one is paying attention. I think that's right. And you know, I know we have... Funds going to a chair over at Cato Institute right now that's funded through a, a bequest fund that was set up by a donor uh, through us. And that's great. it allowed the money to come in at one time. And, and maybe a donor has a, a wealth event. They sell a business. They know they want to give $15 million, but they don't want to give it all right then. They can get that tax benefit of putting it away, getting the deduction right then with a donor advised fund. And as you say, doing that year-to-year -year giving, make sure that the institution is doing the things that it says it's going to do and wants to do over time, which is a, a great benefit. I also like, too, the kind of year-to-year -year giving with an endowment at the end. So maybe 10 years of annual giving, and then at year 10, if the donor is happy to make that endowed gift. Um, so I think a DAF can be a good partner in figuring out how to balance the needs of the institution with your own um, security and protection as a donor. And I guess this hits on another thing. There's so many ways to do this, right? There's so many ways to structure a gift mm -hmm. that take some extra time, may require a little thought to it versus just handing the money over because the goal is to have that happy time that Mr. Pizzagalli has now versus uh, with a little bit of pain versus having a lot of pain later, like with the Robertson case at Princeton or other things you could point to. Yeah, Definitely. So there's this interesting trend right now of these outside groups popping up that are often focused on free expression, free speech at universities. This is a huge issue, particularly in conservative libertarian circles. And the typical model, at least as I've seen it, has been to set up an outside organization, either as a standalone 501c3 or through a donor advised funds in some cases, allowing donors who are upset with the way things are going at one school to have a different place, a different conduit for their dollars. Uh, you're my alma mater, Davidson, 
uh, has has a free expression group. Uh, there's one at Bucknell. There's one at MIT. There's a few others. Talk to us about this trend. What is this an effective way to make sure schools stay in line? This is one of the most encouraging signs that I've seen in higher education reform for the past decade. Um, like we talked about in the beginning, there's this, been this real resistance from alumni to take a hard look at what's happening at their alma mater. So the fact that you have these pop-up advocacy alumni groups that are focused around the issue of free speech, focused on their campus, um, that is a completely new development and one that I think has a lot of potential for good. So a lot of this was sparked by two Princeton alums. It was Stuart Taylor and Ed Yingling who founded Princetonians for Free Speech. And they wrote an op-ed last year in the Wall Street Journal that got a lot of coverage about the role that alumni can play in advocating for free speech on campus. So I'm really excited to see where this leads. And I think these groups are already, you're starting to see an impact. So at Princeton, they included a module on free speech in their orientation this past year. I don't think that would have happened without the Princetonians group. Um, And the Alumni Free Speech Alliance is now up to 13 institutions. And I do think it's a really effective way for alumni to voice their concern. And I, I think these alumni groups, too, are rallying around the issue of free speech, but they have a lot of political diversity within their groups. you know, I think it's mostly been an older alumni group, but we're also seeing some kind of younger alums come in, some students and some faculty. So I'm hopeful that they're going to be able to build a really big tent here around the issue of free speech, which is so core to the mission of higher education. Um, there's a quote from one alumni leader that I, I was in a meeting and he said this and I really loved it. And I won't say what the institution is, but he said, if the institution is run by cowards that bend in the wind, then the wind needs to start blowing the other direction. So I, I do have some hope that these alumni groups are going to be able to exert pressure to um, hold universities accountable to their, their core institutional missions. Are you seeing donors give to those organizations in lieu of giving to the alma maters? Are they doing both? What are you What are you seeing? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm really seeing both. So I think that these groups are only going to be successful if they're rooted in love of alma mater. I think if there's kind of too much of a kind of a watchdog element or we're out to get the university, we're trying to take uh, dollars away from X university and give them to another institution, I think that's like not likely to attract a Big Ten, as I was saying, and I think they're going to need that to be successful. I think they want as many voices speaking up for free speech as possible. Um, so I, what I've seen is both. Um, I really like what MIT is doing, and I think you guys are working with the MIT group, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so they're setting up a fund that'll support free speech activities on campus, and I think that's a really smart way to do it for the MIT group to essentially become a major MIT donor. And in theory, it becomes additive to the work that the university is already doing. Exactly. Yeah, so it's not taking away from what the university is doing, but it's channeling it towards a cause that um, these alumni support. So if you're going to make an annual gift to one, I would certainly say give to the MIT free speech group versus to the annual fund. So this goal of academic renewal, if you will, uh, is been a part of ACTA for a long time. It's really gotten a boost with the grant from the Diana Davis Spencer Foundation in 2016. So you've been at it for a while. Are you, and you're closing it on $200 million stewarded through this. Are you seeing change? Uh, are you seeing change on the college level? Are you seeing donors start to pivot in their thinking kind of on a smaller, large scale? Yeah, definitely. And I think, so for the latter part of that question, I think what's happening with the alumni free speech groups is evidence that donor thinking is starting to shift a bit. I think donors are getting a bit more critical or thinking more critically about how they can give um, and really a move towards restricted giving, which I think is a positive when it comes to higher ed. 
I know there's a discussion around restricted giving for nonprofits writ large, but I think it comes to higher education restricted is really, I mean, that's what we're advocating for is to give those restricted dollars. Um, in terms of change on campus, there's some really wonderful campus centers being set up around the country. And ACT has designated these as our oases of excellence. We have a list of about 82 that I'd be happy to share at any point with anyone who's interested. Um, we just had our annual conference for faculty a couple weeks ago, so I'm still kind of writing that high. But there's some really inspiring things happening with these faculty on campus. And one of the things that gives me the most hope is when they come and talk about what they're doing, whether it's you know setting up a program to study free market economics, um, a great Brooks program for engineers, setting up a program in civil discourse that encourages debate, what we're hearing from them is that students really yearn for these kind of encounters. Students are really wanting that rich, deep, nuanced education. They want interesting conversations with diverse viewpoints. They want to read the great books. Um, it's maybe not every student, but I've never had a professor come to one of these conferences and tell me, you know, I just can't find students who are interested in this. Student demand is there. Um, what they come to me saying is that they need help with the funding. So I think that there's, I mean, I would love for FAR to play more of a matchmaker role between these. We have these faculty doing great work. We know that there are donors who are looking for opportunities. I think it's a matter of kind of making those connections between the two. Yeah, and I think that these kinds of gifts, I mean, I think these are really some of the best investments that donors can make is investing in those individual faculty who are doing great work who just need the support to do more. So let's close this out by getting practical. So one of our listeners is saying, you know, I've been approached by a college for a significant contribution, which may be super significant or it may be significant for them. What is a step-by-step way for them to think about both making that decision and then if they say yes, structuring it in a way to really protect their donor intent? As you said at the beginning, there's always this like, oh, giving back to your alma mater is easy. But as we both know, it's a really tricky thing to do. Um, So I think my first piece of advice would be to really be clear on your intentions. What is it that you hope that this gift will achieve? How does this fit in with your overall giving strategy and how? Um, I would kind of see the university giving as a piece of your broader portfolio. Um, and second, I would give a really hard, honest, thorough look at the university and where it is today. Um, I would try to get as uh, remove any kind of cloud of nostalgia that you have about the great experience that you had and really think about what's happening for students today, because ultimately your gift is being made today and for the future. Um, and as a part of that, as we talked about before, I would really recommend having conversations with the people on the ground who are going to be carrying out that gift. So if you're thinking about a gift to athletics, I would be talking with the coaches. If you're thinking about a gift that's academic in nature, you certainly want to be talking with the faculty who are going to be carrying that out. Um, And this is not to malign the advancement office, um, but you you have to know that you're getting a pretty limited view and you're getting a pitch when you talk to them. You really want to be seeing what's going to happen with your gift more broadly. Um, And I think after that, you'll be positioned to make a yes or no decision. And if it's yes, that's when you start getting into the implementation phase. So thinking about vehicle, timeline, structure, um, and I think you'll want to find partners who can be helpful to you on campus and off. I think kind of as much advice as you can get working through the process, the better. Um, And then finally, I would say that you want to codify everything with a really strong gift agreement. I think too often there's a reliance on handshakes and, you know, you want to have those trusted relationships. You want to have those partnerships. Those are really important to the gift going well but you also want to have everything documented in writing. Um, We've just seen too many instances where things go off the rails 10 years in the future. Um, If you're thinking about a gift in perpetuity, then you really need to have a strong gift agreement in place that empowers some sort of mechanism that things go wrong. And I think that is the hardest part 
sometimes I feel like my, my job is to suck the joy out of giving, which I never want to do, but I'm always having to kind of force people to think about, you know, what could possibly go wrong here? And that's not an exercise that anybody particularly enjoys, um, but I think unfortunately it is really necessary, especially when you're thinking about a complicated long-term gift. That's a lot of really great practical advice. If somebody wanted to work with FAR, and at what point in that process are you most leveraged to come in? Pre-decision, once they've said yes and are about to start a gift agreement, where, where do you really add the value? I like to get involved kind of as early as we can because I do think we can be helpful with some of those earlier steps, especially taking a hard, honest look at the university. I think that's where far being a part of ACTA, you really benefit from ACTA's expertise. I mean, we know trustees, we know other donors who might have given to the institution, we know faculty. So we can be really helpful to you in making those on-campus connections that you might need to get a really um, fair-minded view about what's happening on campus. But we also have donors that come to us pretty late in the process, and I think we can also be helpful there. Um, so we have uh, an agreement with a legal fellow at the firm Arnold and Porter. His name's Andres Casares. He's an expert in donor intent. Um, he's really great. So we'll even have donors who come to us and they've done all of the steps. All that they have to do is sign the gift agreement. We can make this a pretty easy process where we review it. We flag any clauses that we think are problematic. We might suggest them to add in, send back our notes, um, and that could be a pretty quick and hopefully somewhat painless process. And do you have a minimum dollar amount that you are working with donors on? No, we don't. So I'm working with donors right now on a scholarship program that's $12,000, but is going to be really meaningful for the campus. All the way up to, I mean, we've worked on some donor intent disputes over a $30 million endowment at a religious institution. So it really runs the gamut. And I think this is one place too where I think FAR can be really helpful is that we often have donors coming to us and they are making the biggest, most meaningful gift of their entire lives. It's a million-dollar endowment to the university. They're somewhat outmatched by the institution because for the university, a million dollars, even though for the donor this is an incredibly meaningful, generous gift, the university is very appreciative, but they're also dealing, you know, their minimum for a principal gift is $10 million. So there is this kind of mismatch between the institution and the donor so having FAR as a hands-on resource, I think, for those donors in particular, can be really, really helpful. 100% agree. And I think that's knowing that there is a place the donors can turn to have their hand held and, and get these structures in place is great. The advice you've given uh, over the last half hour on just some practical stuff that any donor can do, whether they're making $100 or $100 million to their alma mater, is all really, really strong. Uh, more at FAR at academicrenewal.org. You can find all kinds of stuff there. Uh, Emily J., really appreciate you talking to us today. Thanks so much, Peter. It's been a pleasure. Charles Koch used to say that it was often better to burn your dollars than to give them to institutes of higher education. Emily J. of FAR was a bit more charitable in that assessment, but still gave plenty of cautions for donors of how they should be thinking about ways to effectively give their dollars, that they shouldn't just hand them out. Uh, that's, that's one of our rules at Donors Trust as well, that we certainly allow giving to institutes of higher learning, but we do ask that they be directed to some kind of project or some kind of clear uh, output at the university so that we know from a donor intent standpoint where those dollars are going to be used. I really appreciated the Pizza Gali story and kind of a, a eat your vegetables first model of remembering there's going to be a little pain and getting set up the right way, but so much better to have that 
pain, frustration, uh, bureaucratic nonsense up front than to deal with it later. Uh, in fact, you could even loosen the reins on a gift agreement later, but getting them tightened again, well, that's much harder. We've written a number of times in the Donors Trust blog about the challenges of higher ed giving. I know there's a great piece by uh, Donors Trust board member and president of the Simon Foundation, Jim Pearson, on the topic. We'll link to that and any of the other pieces we've done in our show notes if you want more information on this topic. Well, uh, we are so happy to have you here. We are happy to be helpful in talking about donor intent to higher ed or anywhere with you, uh, just as I'm sure our friends at Fund for Academic Renewal would be happy to have a conversation with you as well. Please subscribe to Giving Ventures if you haven't already so you don't miss a show. And if you're feeling extra charitable, do like the show in Apple Podcasts or whatever your chosen platform is to help other people find the show as well. We have a number of great shows in the works, and I am excited to bring those to you in the coming weeks. In the meantime, continue to be a giver, and let's talk more soon.